Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to the end of Acts chapter 12, we will finish off that chapter and move into chapter 13 this day. If you do not have your Bibles, you can use the Pew Bible in front of you, which is found on page 920. We'll begin reading in Acts chapter 12 and verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, when they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Patmos, they, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elmas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Ken Wingate, who is our recent men's retreat speaker, tells the story in his book, A Father's Gift, of a U.S. congressman from Pennsylvania who is quite opposed to the president at that time. And the two of them saw things quite differently and quite frankly, just didn't like each other and didn't get along. And when someone in defense of the president said that the president should be given respect because he was a self-made man, the congressman responded, well, I've never thought of it that way before, but that does relieve God Almighty of a heavy liability. That idea of being a self-made man or woman, that pride, that vain glory, that self-seeking, that self-aggrandizement could all be synonyms for being American. 
We pride ourselves in what we have gained, in what we have achieved, what we have been able to do by the work of our hands, the sweat of our brows, because we are the masters of our own fate, the captains of our own soul. We could even go as far to say that has been bred into our very soul. God indeed has given mankind wonderful ability. We don't want to diminish that. When you think of all the developments that have taken place just in the last 100 years, the innovation, the exploration, the modernization, it's truly remarkable. And so we agree with the psalmist in Psalm 8 that indeed man is made a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honor. But what has mankind done with that amazing capability and the glory given to him by his creator? Has he used it for the glory of God, for the one that has made him and enabled him? No, what we see again and again is that mankind has turned that glory upon itself and given glory to self, the creature rather than the creator who is to be forever blessed. It truly demonstrates the depths of depravity of mankind to rob God of his own glory by exalting oneself. And yet that is what we see in this passage this morning. We see glory stealing from Herod the king and then of a lesser man, that of Elmas, who is opposing the work of Paul and Barnabas. But what I think we should see is that it demonstrates the sin that is in all of us, no matter if we're great or small, no matter if we're rich or poor, significant or insignificant, we are guilty of this more than we recognize. And we must fight against it. And we see the counter and the remedy to such a problem in this passage as well. And so we'll see this in two points this morning, the kingdom of this world and then the kingdom of God. First, the kingdom of this world. When we think of the enemies of God, the name Herod probably comes to mind. We hear about Herod quite often in the biblical accounts but there is actually three Herods, as Pastor Myers pointed out last week, three generations of Herods. There is Herod the Great, who is responsible for all the death of the sons of Bethlehem. He is the Herod that the wise men went to. And then you have his son, Herod Antipas, who beheaded John during the life of Christ. And then you have this Herod that we read of here in Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa, who was the grandson of great and nephew of Antipas. And we saw last week at the beginning of this chapter that he killed James, one of the apostles, one of the inner three. And so you see that death was closely associated with all of these Herods. It's how they ruled. It's how they reigned. Like most tyrants, they struck fear in the hearts of those that were underneath them and currying favor with others. That's how they ruled. That's how they reigned. And that's exactly what this Herod did as well. 
We saw, again, at the beginning of this chapter that Herod Agrippa was laying violent hands on those that belonged to the church. He was fueling the persecution. And he was doing so for one reason and one reason alone, for favor, favor towards the Jews. See, he was probably not very concerned about Christians. He did not really mind what they were doing, but he was only concerned as much as the Jews were concerned, and the Jews were very concerned about this sect that they called Christianity. And so as to appear as a loyal Jew, as a part of his political appeasement, he was willing to do their dirty work, not for the cause of justice, but rather cronyism and partiality. We read of this in Deuteronomy chapter 1 where Moses in the law gives instruction to the rulers and to those that are elders and those that are leaders. And he says very clearly, hear the cases between your brothers. Judge righteously between a man and his brother or the foreigner who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and great alike And you shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And so you hear very clearly of all rulers, all those that are given authority, all those that are to judge, their judgment is to represent God's judgment. They're not to have partiality. They're not to look upon one and give favor to one and then look upon another and if they do not tip the scales in the way that they want, give what is Needed, We are to give righteousness and justice to all, no matter who they are or what we can get from them. Herod did not judge or rule in this way. He did not keep this righteous law in mind. Rather, because of perhaps intimidation by the Jews or simply political expediency, he did what pleased himself. To the point, as I mentioned, he executed James. And he imprisoned Peter, again, because all of this pleased the Jews. And yet what we saw last week was that the Lord rescued Peter, that he had heard the prayers of his church, and much to the chagrin of Herod, Peter is miraculously delivered. And what we see is that Herod was angry, very angry, angry enough, as it says in verse 19, to kill all those that were responsible for keeping Peter in custody. Because losing Peter made Herod lose face and made him look bad. And Herod, the king, couldn't look bad. And if he did, someone was going to pay for that. But what we see in our passage this morning, little did Herod know that ultimately he would be the one that would pay for his own ruthless, vainglory with his own death. And we know the story so well. Herod needing to rally a little bit to improve his appearance, perhaps improve his polling numbers a little bit, sets up a wonderful event where he can be seen by all. 
And so he comes out in his royal garments. In fact, Josephus, the first century historian, talks about this event, says that Herod came out in garments woven completely of silver so that its texture was indeed wondrous. There the silver illuminated by the touch of the first rays of sun was wondrously radiant and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. And so he comes out in these wonderful robes, glistening, going to sit on his throne, and he addresses the crowd in a wonderful oration there in Caesarea, and most likely in the amphitheater in Caesarea, which I had the opportunity of sitting in when I went on my trip to Israel years ago. This theater, this amphitheater, was indeed a modern marvel of its day. It was built right on the sea so that the breeze that would come off of the harbor would be a natural amplification, which was needed because this amphitheater would seat about 35,000. It was constructed by his grandfather, Herod the Great. And so you see a family pattern here, don't you? Herod the Great. It's the sins of the father that are passed on to the third and fourth generation. But the setting was just right for Herod to demonstrate that he was truly Herod, to see his greatness, to see his glory, to have all his loyal subjects marvel at him. And who better to do that than those that were in servile fear of him? For we read that there were people there from Tyre and Sidon who it says that Herod was angry with, but they had come on a peace journey to ease tensions between their countries, to curry that favor, really to butter Herod's bread. But what we see is a spectacle that is quite impressive. But if you are a student of God's word, you know that you see a pattern both here and throughout the whole of Scripture, of those that continually set themselves up against God and the work of God. It's more than just the Herods that we spoke of, although they would definitely be a part of that list, but we see a pattern that goes back long, long before. You can think of the days of Moses and that of Pharaoh. You have in the Exodus, in the wilderness, you have Og, king of Bashan, Shihon, king of the Amorites. In the promised land, you have Jericho and the Canaanites. You have, in the days of David, Goliath and the Philistines. In the days of Hezekiah, you have Sennacherib and the Assyrians. In the days of Daniel, you have King Nebuchadnezzar and King Darius of Babylon. In the days of Esther, you have Haman and the Persians. In the day of Jesus, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we could go on and on, and those are just a few examples from the scriptures. If you think about church history, even to the modern day, that list would continue. It seems that at every turn, there is a leader, a ruler, a king that is opposing the people of God and the work of God. 
And so we need to ask, why is that? Well, we are given an explanation, aren't we? If we go all the way back to the very beginning again, to the Garden of Eden and those beginning pages of Genesis, to the fall of Adam and Eve and the curse that ensues, we read of this conflict that takes place between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In other words, between Christ and the evil one of this world and their offspring, the seed of Christ and the seed of the devil himself. And therefore, what we see throughout the biblical scripture, the biblical testimony, is we see this conflict between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. And therefore, the kingdom of this world that is in opposition to the kingdom of Christ is ultimately under the direction of the evil one, the one that is called the the God of this world, the prince of the power of air. And what is it? both then and now, that Satan wants. I tell you what he wants. He wants glory. He wants the glory of God. That was the very cause of his fall from heaven. Isaiah writes of this when he says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low, You sit in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Jesus says something similar When he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like a bolt of lightning. He who set himself up is cast down to the earth. And so when we understand this background, as we turn back to Acts chapter 12, then we are not surprised that King Herod is doing what he is doing here. Why? Because Herod is just another pawn in the hands of the prince of this world. And therefore, we should not be surprised that Satan and all of his earthly lackeys are glory whores that are filled up with self-importance, self-grandeur, self-power, not giving praise and glory as they were created to, but rather seeking it. And yet what we see is that this kingdom of this world in all of its power, in all of its might, in all of its gold, and in all of its glitter and glitz is nothing but a kingdom of dust ruled by men and women that perhaps, yes, have a lot of bank, perhaps a lot of bark, and even some bites but there is nothing. There is nothing before the kingdom of our Lord and the king of that kingdom, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see is most of the time, the Lord allows the kingdom of this world and its leaders to carry on in all their pomp and all their circumstance and all their show. Why? Because they are as nothing before him. They do not deviate his plan one iota. 
But there are times that the Lord demonstrates how small they truly are. And here is such a case. Here is such an example. Recently, I was out in the woods, and out in the woods, there was mosquitoes, a lot of them. And they were buzzing in my ear, and they were quite annoying. But when they were buzzing around, yes, they were annoying, but I kind of left them to themselves. But as soon as they landed on my skin, that was a different story. They crossed a line, and sure enough, whack. They were smacked. They were dead. And this is a similar example. Here, Herod crosses the line, and the Lord squishes Herod like a bug, like a glory-sucking bug that he was. Why? Because he set himself up as a God. It says that he took glory to himself. He did not give glory. He took glory. And the wrath of God, as a result, descended upon him. As it says in verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, and he was eaten with worms, perhaps intestinal, parasitic worms, perhaps it's maggots, perhaps something else. I'm not sure. All we know is that it was a horrific end. All we can say is that this was truly the judgment of God. And here, Herod, Herod the powerful, Herod the great, Herod the God, was literally humbled to death. And the worms, literally the worms, proved more powerful than he was. And I tell you, that is the kingdom of this world. Now juxtapose that to, second, the kingdom of God. We see this amazing contrast. In verse 24, it says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Notice what takes the place. In fact, it seems a little bit uh, anticlimactic. You see this, the word of God just continues on and it increases and Barnabas and Saul kind of continue to do what they were doing already. They don't have a, a pep rally. They don't go and, and, and rejoice and glory in the fact that, you know, Herod is dead. You know, ding dong, the wicked king of the West is dead. No, none of that. No, they continue on in what they are doing. In fact, it goes on in verse 2 of 13, saying that as they were worshiping and praying and fasting, they were commanded by the Holy Spirit to set aside Barnabas and Saul to the work that I have called them. And they go forth from Antioch to Cyprus. And it's really the beginning of the first missionary journey of Paul. And there in Cyprus, they come across another leader, another ruler, another politician, the proconsul Sergius Paulus. We we're told his name. But he is not like Herod, which should at least slightly redeem your hope that there are good politicians. There are. 
They might be few and far between, but there are good politicians. We see one here. And why is he a good politician? Because he sought out those that had come. Perhaps even what they were saying seemed strange, seemed odd, but he was willing to listen and he calls to to hear the word of God. It says that in verse 7. He summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. What a wonderful politician. What a wonderful leader. Let me explore this. Let me seek this out. Let me see if this is true. But notice what takes place. There's one of Satan's minions there as well. The form of a false prophet, Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus. His name was Elmas. He is a magician, we are told. Elmas, the magician. And like Herod, he opposed the work of God in the going forth of the gospel. It says that he sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Perhaps he, he saw his, his power slipping away. Perhaps he was one that would give counsel to this ruler, to this politician. And he saw his influence, his notoriety coming into question with these men coming in. They had a, a greater power, a stronger power, a true message. See, he's the same as Herod, just on a smaller scale. Ultimately, it was a loss of glory for himself. And yet, look again at what Paul says to him. He says, you son of the devil. That is not a curse word. No, he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? See, he was a son of the devil because he was doing the work of the devil. Just like Herod. And yet what we see once again is that that would not prevail. He's not struck with death, although he could have, like Herod. But he was struck with darkness for a time. The same curse that took place to to Saul when he met the Lord Jesus Christ takes place to this man. We don't know if he came to faith or not, but it was a temporary darkness at least, it says. And so perhaps there was hope that he too repented and trusted in Christ. But we see again and again that those oppose God and his work can only go so far. The one that says to the sea, as he does in Job 38, thus far shall you go and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Says the same to all his creation and all his creatures. And we see in verse 12 that the proconsul believed he was converted. I think it would be very easy for us to go away from a text like this and say, yep, God is great. We are small. Sing a song and go home. But what we see from this passage should ultimately shake us to our very core. And when we seek our own kingdom, be it a Herod-sized kingdom or an Elmas-sized kingdom, it matters not We are not partnering in the work of God. We are actually opposing the work of God. And we're actually partnering with Satan himself. That the kingdom of man, the kingdom of this world is all about self-glory, vain glory, self-aggrandizement, self-importance. 
It is one and the same with the kingdom of Satan. It is stealing of God's glory. It is glory whoring, taking that which does not belong to us. And oh, how easy it is for us to do so. Maybe not to the same degree as Herod. Perhaps there are not those going around behind you saying the voice of a God and not of a man. Maybe we don't see ourselves as demigods, but how easily we can say, yep, I did that. My hands have made that. I've produced that. I've successfully led that. I've received those good grades, those good marks, those good reviews. I have earned that certificate, that title, that degree. I have this title in front of my name or after my name. My bank accounts, my 401k, my home, my toys all indicate that I am succeeding, I am thriving, I am doing pretty well for myself. All of it is glory whoring, stealing glory that does not belong to us. Yes, we can do great things. Yes, we can have great achievements. Yes, we can have amazing results, and we ought to, but it not ought to be for us. It ought to be for him. He is the one that enables us. He is the one that empowers us. He is the one that gives us everything, literally everything. We do not breathe. We do not take our next breath without his command. And so for us to take any credit, for us to take any glory whatsoever is the height of arrogance and pride and downright foolishness because none of it is ours. It'd be like a child on the back of his or hers father's back on a hike to the mountaintop. And there at the top of the mountain, this child that rode its father's back all the way goes, I did it. And yet I tell you that that child has more of a right to say that than for us to try and say the same to our God. For us to say, I did it. Look at what my hands have achieved. No, it is in him that we live and move and have our very being. And so those that steal glory from God rather than give glory to God will die in that false glory. If you think Herod's demise was great, it's nothing. It's nothing like those that, what those will experience on the day of judgment when that judgment falls upon this earth at the hands of the righteous judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge righteously, will judge in justice, and you will get and gain exactly what you deserve. And those that have been filled with self will have a very similar judgment to that of Herod. Or Jesus says that you will go to the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But praise God. God is so gracious. It's so good to turn us from this self-love, from this self-glory, from this pride, from this 
arrogance. Today, my friends, is a day of repentance. Not for some, but for all. For each and every one of us. As I said at the very beginning, this is the sin that is in all of us. That little thought that I'm, well, I'm just a little bit better than he or she. That little bit of, I achieved this. I excelled at that. Look at me. Look at what I have done. Friends, we are but worms. In fact, we're worse than worms. We are proud and arrogant worms. Imagine a worm saying, look at me. Look at me. We would say, that's pathetic. You're a worm. And it is. It is pathetic. But that is what it's like when we would glory in our own glory. When we would take pride in what we are or what we have done or what we have become Isaiah says this, the Lord says this in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idol. So the question this morning is, whose glory do we seek? Whose kingdom are we building? This passage gives us two kingdoms, two kings, two sets of servants to that kingdom. One that is full of pomp and circumstance, of vain glory that is seemingly of might and power, of greatness, and yet it crumbles, it falls to the ground, it's literally eaten by worms. And the other kingdom, just seemingly puny and small and weak, made of nobodies, the least of these servants, giving themselves to silly tasks in the eyes of the world like worship and prayer and service. And yet, what is it that we see? What is it we see in this passage? What is it we see to this very day that the kingdom continues to spread? Not the kingdom of this world, but the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ is ever increasing, it's ever growing, just like Jesus said, like a mustard seed, the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants. In other words, it cannot be stopped Despite the ongoing persecution that's against it, even to this day, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Why? Because it's exactly what we pray. When we pray the Lord's prayer, his kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what kingdom are you a part of? What allegiance to what king are you giving? The kingdom of Christ requires us to pick up our cross daily. There's no outward glory. There's no outward praise of man, but rather a cross. The kingdom of Christ requires us to go through trials and tribulations and persecution and yet continue to, to give worship and to give prayer and to give service to the King of kings and the Lord of lords because he alone is the one that matters. He alone is the one that is worthy. And I tell you that there is no greater glory that we can give to our God than to continue on, to remain faithful, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when there is trials, even when there is tribulations, and especially when there is persecution, when the entire world would say, there is nothing you can gain from going that way, and you continue to go that way. That is when God gains glory. And that is the call that is before us Day in and day out, it's the call of Christ upon the church to walk in humility. Humility is the need 
of the day. Calvin says, man is never sufficiently affected by the awareness of his lowly state till he has compared himself with God's majesty. That is what we do every Sunday, isn't it? Morning and evening, we have a worldview adjustment. That is why we want such glorious, transcendent praise. We want to get lost in the wonder of who our God truly is so that we can give that honest and humble praise to him and him alone to be reminded that he is God and that we are not and that we are simple servants, rendering him simple service and glory unto his name. And so join me in that building of his kingdom, the sacrifice and service that is required, the submission to his cause, the constantly dying to self, being poured out unto that which is everlasting. Just one more quick note before we go to the table. Isn't it so sad and so pitiful that Herod receiving this praise from man, the voice of a God and not of a man, did that crowd believe it? Of course not. It was pure flattery. They were using him to get food. There was no true love. There was no true respect. There was no honor. It was all a house of cards. And besides, what good did it really do for him as he was there lying and dying on the ground? It just demonstrates, doesn't it, that in this world you can either command respect and admiration of others, or you can earn respect and admiration of others. One comes through dictating it. The other one comes from putting others before yourself, dying to self, loving God and loving others. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. Thinking less of your praise and your accolades and the applause of men, which is so fleeting and fading and fickle. Yes, the world will quickly pat you on the back while they're looking for the next one to praise, the one that will ultimately replace you. And so don't chase that applause or focus solely on getting to the top because you might realize when you get there that there's nothing there. That's why Jesus in John chapter two said he did not trust himself unto the crowds for he himself knew what was in man. He committed himself to the Father alone. He came to serve rather than to be served. He gave his life as a ransom for many. That is the call of Christ, to pick up your cross and follow him. There and there alone is true and everlasting glory and life forevermore. Just two quotes as we go to the table this morning. The first comes from Jonathan Edwards, who said, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach than humility. And then Richard Sibbs, who gives the ultimate cause, the ultimate reason why this ought to be a part of our life and our demeanor. He said, Christ came down from heaven, emptied himself of majesty and tender love for our soul. Shall we not come down from our high conceit to do this world a little good? Shall we be so proud after God has been so humble? 
Amen. Join me in prayer. Lord, indeed, how shall we be proud after you've been so humble, giving of your life for ours, though we are but a worm, O Lord, and not worthy of the least of your mercies. You have lavished upon us grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. You've given us the cup of love that is demonstrated at this table this morning. And Lord, we want to drink deeply of it so that we would give praise and glory where it is rightfully due in you and you alone. So Lord, would you help us? Would you allow us to die to self so that those would not see us but see you? That we would be like John the Baptist, that we must decrease so he can increase. Would that be the tune of our hearts again and again, over and over, Lord, so that you would be praised? Would you help us in this? We pray in Christ, our Savior's name.